Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, episode 173, The Miss Stone Affair. Now, just one quick note before we start, and that is to give a big thanks to Georgi Dikov for his contribution to the podcast. And with that, let's get into it. Last time, we covered the death of Evloki Yorgeyev and the many controversies surrounding that death and his will. We then covered the massive peasant uprisings and violence against that new 10% tithe, and the Macedonian movements did a surprise reverse with the MRO no longer controlling the supremacists, but now instead the supremacists are asserting their independence while the MRO maybe just allowed a deadly Trojan horse into its midst. So then the Bulgarian government is now led by a non-party cabinet ahead of elections and is opposed to both the growing power of the agrarian movement and the calls for violence in Macedonia. I mentioned last time that this current government was technically headed by Ivanchov, but was in reality run by Prince Ferdinand and General Racho Petrov. So, who what was this arrangement and who is this general? Racho Petrov was originally from Schumann and had risen quickly through the ranks of the Bulgarian army before fighting in the Serbo-Bulgarian War back in 1885, where he distinguished himself. He ultimately opposed Stambolov and worked with Ferdinand to help remove him before serving as Minister of War in the Stoilov government and developing some ties with the MRO. Note that most uh, kind of Bulgarian officers at this time are more aligned with the supremacists, but at this time Petrov was more aligned with the MRO. Now, by the time he began working as Ferdinand's kind of man behind the curtain, Petrov was just 39 years old, and had really quite an impressive resume of military, government, and even some entrepreneurial endeavors. When Todor Ivanchov's non-party government was formed, Petrov became Minister of Internal Affairs and effectively ran things behind the scenes for a month and a half or so that the government lasted. So, in January, Ivanchov resigned and Ferdinand made Petrov Prime Minister of yet another non-party cabinet, though this is just for the last few weeks before the next election. Now, the January 1901 elections in Bulgaria were probably the most free and fair the country had ever seen. The usual intimidation tactics were kept to a minimum, and this is basically because it was a non-party government, right? You, you didn't have one of the major political parties running the government, and the major political parties running the government were the ones that would generally do all the kind of vote manipulations and intimidation things. So Bulgaria got what it deserved the whole time, a proper free and fair election. So what was the result? We, we finally get a kind of more, let's say, unbiased idea of what the Bulgarian population, at least those who decide to vote, really think. Well, we got what was termed a colorful cabinet. Essentially, no party got anything close to a majority on its own, and the best performers as a percentage were actually the conservatives, who, as you know, almost never do the best. You know, they usually get put in charge because... Ferdinand wants them in charge. But I said, you know, the conservatives did the best. They still only got 22.8% of the votes. So yeah, not, again, nothing close, not even half of what they would need for a majority. 
the agrarians actually got 7.7%, which considering the fact that they still couldn't agree on whether they should actually be involved in politics is pretty good. Technically, though, these were not you know people officially running as members of or representatives of the agrarians. They're just people who claimed association with the agrarians and most ultimately joined other parties once the National Assembly convened. Well, this all basically helped convince the agrarians that they should participate in elections officially because you know they were going to happen no matter what, and this was going to be the result, so they might as well take advantage. The general kind of outcome of this election was that the ruling liberals lost their majority. The progressive liberal party of Tsankov, which is a little more on the conservative side despite its name, ultimately formed a coalition with the People's Party of Stoilov, the conservatives that were running things for a long time recently, and the Democratic Party of Karavelov, as well as the agrarians. You know, I mentioned they joined other parties. <clears throat> so this is kind of an odd pairing, uh, but to be honest, anyone who follows Bulgarian politics today should find everything coming out of this election very familiar. Or as Konstantinova put it, quote, The experience demonstrated that in the beginning of the 20th century, the Bulgarians were ready to give their support to newly established parties and to nominate representatives among their ranks. This fact, to a great extent, destroyed the myth of the conservative behavior of the Bulgarian voters in their political apathy, end quote. So, like I said, we, we finally got a kind of a clearer picture of what Bulgarian voters actually think, and, well, they have a lot of different opinions, let's say. So, there were some bright sides looking at the situation, but in practice, this election meant that Petko Karavelov was now prime minister for the fourth time at the head of a fairly unstable conservative coalition government aimed at opposing many of the recent actions of the post-Stoilov liberal governments. So, this brings us to the question of... Where was Ferdinand in all of this? Well, while those elections were taking place in January 1901, Queen Victoria of England, Great Britain, finally died, meaning that there was about to be a you know, centuries-ranking massive funeral, you know, the place to be and be seen. When Ferdinand got the news, he reached out to the British government to request that he be able to attend the funeral as the ruler of Bulgaria and not merely as a member of the Coburg family and, you know, a relative of the royal family. So recall previously when he had attended some royal events and things, even though he was now mostly recognized as Prince of Bulgaria, he still kind of treated as like just a Coburg family member and not as the prince of a country. Well, the response was basically that this was an inappropriate time to raise such a question, and so Ferdinand refused to attend the funeral in person, sending a delegation instead. Ferdinand instead spent that day, same day of the funeral, celebrating his son Boris's birthday in Plovdiv, which put a, in this whole event in Plovdiv, basically put a Russian diplomat in a place of high honor. So obviously, Ferdinand sending some messages there. Now, the new King Edward VII of Great Britain was livid at the entire situation, but it was now clear that Ferdinand was once again shifting Bulgaria's alignment more towards Russia. This was helped by the fact that many of the parties in that new coalition government were also more on the pro-Russian side. So, the prince was playing his usual political games, finding ways to pull strings and nudge Bulgarian politics in one direction or the other to suit his foreign policy goals. Although he was quite good at playing the game of European politics, 
let's say he was less good at dealing with the rather different dynamics of the Macedonian question. On that front, Ferdinand was in a pretty difficult position. Constant writes how, quote, It is not surprising that the Macedonian problem made him feel sick. He was immobilized by the powers, while the wild men of Macedonia growled and snapped at him. The revolutionaries had no time for or, or understanding of the niceties of European power politics. For years, they believed that Macedonia would be freed with Russian help. Panitza's plot against Ferdinand and the assassination of Stambolov were meant to remove the obstacles to obtaining Russian help. The Macedonians were bitterly disappointed in their hope that Russia would at last act in Macedonia's favor after the 1896 reconciliation between Bulgaria and Russia. Immediately after the conversion of Prince Boris, Russia hastened to warn against a possible revival of agitation in Macedonia under the mistaken supposition that the reconciliation with Russia would cover any aspirations and machinations in that direction. Nothing would be allowed to disturb the status quo. End quote. I feel like most of the major European power politicians at that time could get that you know, tattooed on their forehead. Nothing will be allowed to disturb the status quo. It's kind of the mantra of the era, it feels. So while Ferdinand and the Bulgarian government had shifted more towards Russia, St. Petersburg remained an ardent defender of the status quo in the Balkans, leaving the prince stuck between great powers demanding calm and armies of revolutionaries loudly demanding the exact opposite. And now, just at this moment, the MRO, feeling confident after merging with the Brotherhood, which I talked about last time, was hit by a bombshell. Two MRO activists in Thessaloniki were arrested by the Ottomans. One escaped, but the other gave up the names of other MRO members after being tortured. This triggered yet more arrests, including of some top leaders. Now, the cycle continued and brought up the Ottoman authorities yet more names and yet more documents with information on MRO activities. Soon, every member of the MRO Central Committee was in Ottoman custody. Every one. In total, 188 people were arrested in this roundup, with nine of them ultimately being sentenced to death. But critically, before his arrest, one of the senior MRO members gave many of the organization's official stationery, which were used to give orders. Basically, the stationery was the only way you knew these orders were truly from the leadership and not from some rando. So that power, that stationery, was given to Ivan Garvanov. That former Revolutionary Brotherhood leader, the guy who hated the MRO and wanted to destroy it, but agreed to kind of merge with them because what else was he going to do? Perry describes what this meant in practice, writing, quote, Although he had never been a member of the Central Committee, Gervanov, who was in the right place at the right time, stepped into the leadership void created by the arrests of the legally constituted Central Committee members. Thus, what he was unable to formally achieve by force and coercion as Revolutionary Brotherhood president, Girvanov accomplished thanks to a twist of fate, possibly augmented by a bit of duplicity, though this is unsubstantiated. End quote. In other words, that Trojan horse that the MRO had gotten extremely lucky and was now effectively in control of the organization, in some ways. I mean, remember the MRO is fairly decentralized, so you know, control in air quotes. No one, even the central leadership committee didn't fully, fully control it. They couldn't make everyone do everything they wanted. Now, the supremacists took this as a chance to spread their influence 
amongst what remained of the MRO's organization. However, both the supremacist attacks on the and the potential leadership of Gervanov were stopped by two other senior MRO officials who escaped arrest by being in Bulgaria at the time. These two officials sent letters to all the regional MRO committees telling them to carry on as best they could until a new leadership could be selected by a new Congress. Meanwhile, the supremacists held their own Congress, but the organization was now deeply divided between three factions. The supporters of Serafov, who we know is about to be arrested. I, I discussed this a little while ago, but basically the, the time he's arrested for the murder of that guy in Romania is about now. The second faction is that of the supporters of Sonchev, that army officer who's about to take control once Serafov is arrested, and basically supporters of the MRO. Essentially, none of these three factions could gain a majority, and so the organization was nearly paralyzed for the moment. To make matters worse, the Bulgarian government issued an order to arrest some senior supremacist members around this time as well. Specifically, again, this is when Serafov was arrested for that murder. So, with the arrest of Serafov, Sonchev was able to take control of the supremacists. He also resigned his post in the army in order to avoid the appearance of close ties between the Bulgarian government and the supremacists, but he remained close to officials in Sofia and kept them well informed about supremacist activities. Some regional committees of the supremacists were very unhappy with Sonchev at the helm, and so they withdrew from the organization. But soon, Serafov was out of prison, and coordinated with the remaining senior MRO members who had avoided prison to join forces against Sonchev. So once again, Serafov is changing sides, kind of left and right. But remember, he was originally the MRO's man inside the supremacists before turning on the MRO to ally with Sonchev, and now he's allying with the, C the MRO once again to act against Sonchev. So yeah, Serafov is all over the place. But unfortunately, we don't really know why. You know, we, we don't have his inner thoughts. We don't know what his, his thinking is behind all these decisions. But yeah, all over the place. Okay, so the supremacists are now under the control of a former Bulgarian army general who's close to the government. The MRO is sort of in control, under the control of the Bulgarian Revolutionary Brotherhood, but is basically in flux at the moment. And members of both supremacists and the MRO are who are kind of on the outside of power and looking in, are trying to come up with new ways to attack both organizations' new leadership. I know, this is all obscenely confusing, but I hope it's somewhat clear. Anyways, with Sonchev in charge, the supremacists were now looking to be more militant and were causing the Bulgarian government some headaches on the international stage. Specifically, the Ottomans mobilized around 50,000 troops to man the Bulgarian border with Macedonia to prevent crossings by armed bands. And in general, international pressure on Ferdinand to keep Macedonia calm was getting heavier and heavier by the month. This resulted in the Bulgarian government doing a few things, like banning rifle clubs, which were ostensibly sport clubs but were really organizations to train men to fight in Macedonia, as well as forbidden, forbidding army officers from associating with the supremacists. Now, around this time, Gervanov was actually arrested. Gervanov, remember, the Brotherhood guy who was had the official stationary of the MRO. So he was arrested in connection with the death of his friend, who it seems accidentally discharged a revolver while showing people how to use it. Oops. But anyway, so Gervanov is arrested, but he's soon released, and he heads to Sofia to speak with the new leadership of the supremacists. 
There, he told Sonchev, quote, I will give you the organization, the MRO, but on condition that the MRO remains separate there and you here. The autonomy of the organization will be preserved. MRO members are convinced that it is not possible to work otherwise, end quote. So, Gerbonov, the, the Trojan horse, is trying to kind of cut a deal. But while Gerbonov was, again, kind of maybe sort of a little bit in control of the MRO, in theory, the reality was quite different. Perry summarizes, writing, quote, With Gerbonov at the head of the Central Committee, the organization continued to be decentralized, and communications between the center and the regional district and local committees remained ineffective. The Central Committee was not in contact with the grassroots members, and they, in turn, knew little or nothing about the political infighting and other travails affecting the leadership. As a result, the local committee's policies were divorced from the decisions of the Central Committee. No effort was made to convene a Congress to elect new leaders. Such an event probably would have been difficult to hold given the tenor of the times. End quote. So, again, there, there's the, that difference between theory and reality in terms of who's really controlling the MRO. And the answer is kind of nobody. Okay, so now with all this covered, we basically caught up with what's happening with the MRO and the supremacists in, I'm sorry to say, just the first six months of 1901. So it's been a busy time. But now let's catch up on what that conservative coalition government has been up to during that time. First, they gave amnesty to those arrested for opposing that 10% tax before ultimately canceling the tax itself. So, basically that tax, you know, invigorated a new agrarian movement, and ultimately it was only actually enforced for, I think, just a couple of months. Not very long. But, remember, that tax had been imposed for a reason, and that reason was to basically that, well, Bulgaria's finance were in, finances were in very bad shape and they needed the money after that disastrous attempt to build a parallel railway line in what was Eastern Romalia. So, yeah, the tax has been canceled. It's wonderful for all the agrarians and the, the farmers and peasants, but still a gaping hole in the budget. As a result, Karavelov was speaking to France about securing yet another loan. They also made some administrative changes, which made the country a bit more democratic, as well as giving some more freedom of the press. But on the other hand, they were also making the country less democratic by banning itinerant Roma from voting. So basically, Roma people who don't have a permanent address, the government was trying to make it so they can't vote. Also, <clears throat> although I couldn't find any details of it, one of my sources did mention that there was an anti-Semitic pogrom in Kusindil at this time, now, you'll recall Bulgaria has had a fairly small Jewish population since the Middle Ages. One Tsarino was originally Jewish, and Turnerville had a Jewish quarter. But there hasn't been a whole lot of anti-Semitism, at least that's been mentioned in my sources, in Bulgaria up to this point. Now, I'm speculating here based on a total lack of information, uh, but it's, it, you know, it is true that at this time, uh, anti-Semitic pogroms were becoming much more common in the Russian Empire. So I imagine some of the same influences, like well, media, uh, which helped fuel those pogroms in Russia, may have also had some influence on the events in Kusindil. But again, I can't find any details at all about this event. And frankly, if any of you know anything about it, let me know, because I'm, I'm curious. But in any case, this is a troubling indication that anti-Semitism is on the rise in Bulgaria. Anyways, now, finally, all this brings us to the infamous Miss Stone Affair. But first, we need a little bit of context. 
As I've mentioned before, the MRO often used robbery and ransom to help fund its activities. However, Gotzedelchev argued that small-scale robberies of basically everyday people harmed the organization's reputation essentially by making a very large number of ordinary people very angry at them. As an alternative, he argued that they should focus more on kidnapping a smaller number of wealthy individuals. Frankly, this argument is pretty sound in terms of avoiding harm to public opinion, although wealthy people are also better connected, so there's a higher risk of antagonizing, you know, higher up people and governments, but this is the decision they made. Now, one of the men behind this decision was Jan Sandansky. He's an important character, so I'll pause a bit and explain who he is. Now, he was born in Melnik in Macedonia a few years before the 1878-1879 Russo-Ottoman War, and he lived in Gorna-Jumaya, which is modern Bulgarograd, until the Treaty of Berlin placed that city, well, remained, you know, had a keep within the Ottoman Empire, at which point his family moved just over the new border to Dupnica. He served in the Bulgarian army for a while before working in a law office. Soon, though, Sandansky got involved with the Supreme Committee and even participated in an unsuccessful Cheta raid into Ottoman territory in 1895. He fought in another Cheta during the 1897 Greco-Ottoman War and was wounded in the arm. After recovering, he remained active in the organization's attempt, uh, attempts to aid refugees and educate people about the Macedonian issue. So, you know, not fighting as much, but still trying to do what he could for the organization and the cause. He also became connected with some socialist circles and to the Radoslavov liberals, connections which ultimately got him a job running a local prison. Now, it was at this point that, frustrated with the failures he experienced with the supremacists and feeling like the organization wasn't successfully doing what it aimed to do, he started working instead with the MRO alongside Gotsedelchev. In the process, he quit his prison job because, well, politically he, he wasn't going to be able to keep it. It was yeah, going to look bad. And he abandoned his fiancée in order to focus entirely on the Macedonian struggle. Now, this takes us back to his arguments with Gotsedelchev over who to kidnap to help fund the organization. Now, once they decided to go for wealthier people, a few attempts were made to kidnap wealthy Greek and Turks, Greek people and Turkish people, but uh, all these failed. There was even a proposal to kidnap Ferdinand himself when he was visiting the Rila Monastery, but the organization ultimately decided that wasn't the best idea. They did ultimately decide that kidnapping a Protestant missionary currently operating in Bansko, now in Bulgaria, but then still a part of Ottoman Macedonia, was the best way to go. That Protestant missionary was an American woman named Ellen Stone. In early September, she and a Bulgarian woman who was a fellow Protestant missionary were captured while traveling through a kind of gorge somewhere between Bansko and Gornajumaya. Once the two women were taken, a ransom of 14,500 Turkish gold liras was demanded for their release. Now, for context, that's about $2 million in 2022 dollars, although another source said they demand the equivalent of about $4 million in 2022 dollars, but regardless, it was a lot of money. No surprise, this immediately became a major international incident. Besides hoping to raise money, the MRO also wanted to blame all this on the Ottomans, though, because they hoped it would push the United States, who, you know, Miss Stone was a citizen of, into demanding an end to Ottoman rule in Macedonia. 
This is why the kidnappers basically tried to pretend and convince everyone that they were actually Turks and not Bulgarians. Now, in general, the idea that the United States would abandon its non-interventionist policy in Europe to, uh, to prevent kidnapping of missionaries is, well, to me, a little far-fetched. And again, shows how much the Macedonian organizations were kind of removed from the realities of international politics. But, you know, they're doing their best. And the U.S. did send a cable to Constantinople to request the Ottomans to do everything they could to ensure the release of Miss Stone. However, another message which was, was soon received from Miss Stone herself reading, quote, The men who captured us showed courtesy towards us. But now, since Turkish soldiers and Bashi Bazouks, the Muslim irregulars we've talked about, have begun pursuing us, our condition is altogether changed. Therefore, I beg you to hasten in sending the sum and that you will insist before the Turkish government that it stop the pursuit of us by the soldiers. Otherwise, we will be killed. End quote. This new information led the U.S. to reverse course and ask the Ottomans not to recapture the missionary and to, well, see what else they could do instead. Now, at this point, it was decided that the by the head of the local missionary organization to just pay the ransom. However, the missionaries were kind of horrified by this decision, believing that it would only encourage more such kidnappings. So, in light of this, the missionary organization bravely decided to shift responsibility to U.S. President Theodore Roosevelt. The U.S. administration now began looking into the matter and soon concluded that Stone had not been kidnapped by Turks, but by agents of the, quote, Bulgarian Committee, end quote. With this new information, it was now clear that the Ottoman government would not be able to resolve the situation on its own. For a time, Washington concluded that the best course of action was to simply leave the matter to resolve itself. However, public pressure in the U.S. was building as newspapers breathlessly covered the kidnapping. That is why the incident has been called America's first hostage crisis, predating similarly scandalous kidnappings like that of Charles Lindbergh's baby by decades. But, well, what could the U.S. actually do? Paying the kidnappers would set a dangerous precedent and make the administration look weak. Ultimately, they decided that the missionary organization should be the one to pay the ransom. But the organization said it wouldn't pay, so it was decided to raise the money from the public. Now, obviously this took a little bit of time, so it was mid-December, a few months after the original kidnapping, by the time the American delegation had sent 230 pounds of gold, worth about $66,000, or $2.3 million in today's dollars. And it was hoped that the kidnappers would accept this amount. I'd imagine they would. There was also a challenge that the Ottomans were very determined to make sure this money did not reach the kidnappers, because, well, the kidnappers were trying to overthrow the Ottoman government there, so... Yeah, they, everyone had their own interests here. So, because of that, the Americans actually had to smuggle the money out from under the nose of the Ottomans, who were kind of guarding it, and they essentially took it out a little bit of a time and replaced it with lead shot for shotguns. Clever. Ultimately, they got the gold to the kidnappers, and they said they would release Miss Stone after 10 days. Now, the Americans had no guarantee the MRO members would actually do this, but... In fact, the kidnappers were, by this time, very eager to be done with all of this. Because, on the one hand, the Bulgarian woman who had been kidnapped alongside Miss Stone had given birth. And needless to say, taking care of three captives, including a newborn baby, in winter, in the mountains, in the forests, while avoiding Ottoman authorities, not an easy task. 
On top of this, the two captives had apparently spent countless hours attempting to convert their captors to Protestant Christianity, which evidently was quite annoying. But the two women were now free and able to return to their missionary work. Oddly enough, some suspected that the women had actually basically made the whole thing up in order to raise the money in secret, but this is clearly not true. There's lots of evidence this was a real thing. Another interesting side note here is that there was a bit of Stockholm Syndrome here because Miss Stone later became a very outspoken supporter of the MRO and its mission in Macedonia. So, before the term Stockholm Syndrome has even been invented, but an interesting side note. Now, in historical context, sources now view the Miss Stone affair as a kind of rude awakening for the US that it was now a great power, it was going to have to deal with the accompanying challenges to that status. On the local kind of level, the money that was raised was enough to fund a tremendous amount of MRO activities. This was like, yeah, uh, more money than they'd ever received at once. And so the question now is flush with cash and, you know, still kind of not super well structured or well run because it's not, you know, the MRO has not held a Congress to elect new leadership, so it doesn't quite have leadership. So we're left with the question, the MRO is kind of in chaos, but flush with cash. What are they going to do next? And in the next episode, we will answer that question. So you won't want to miss it. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. As always, you can check out more information about this and all episodes at bghistorypodcast.com. There's a link in the description.